Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. I'm super excited about today's episode as I got to talk at the WCB studios with one of my favorite people here in Central Ohio, Dr. Miriam Hussein, who Prognosis Ohio listeners will know from past episodes as a physician currently completing her hematology oncology training, but also a climate crisis activist here in our state. Today, however, we're talking with Miriam in her capacity as current president of the Islamic Medical Association of North America. Dr. Hussein and I talk about the health challenges facing Ohio's Islamic community, anti-Islamic stigma and violence, and the promise of interfaith collaborations in Ohio to address health disparities across our state. I thought it was a great conversation, and I always enjoy having Miriam on the show. Before turning to our conversation, though, I want to let you know that this is our final episode for a bit, the last of this season. I'm going to be honest with you, I'm just burned out. As you know, the last few weeks have been emotionally draining in many different kinds of ways. There's a ton of work to do in our state, and we'd like to think that Prognosis Ohio has something to contribute to it. But it's hard to know exactly what's useful, especially when you've got amazing news outlets like the Ohio Capital Journal, Matter News, and others around the state following many of these issues closely. So my point is this, I love doing this show, but it's a ton of work, which is why I haven't had the capacity to get episodes out with the regularity I would like, or with the production quality I aim to achieve. Our show notes and other materials, promotional and otherwise, have also been a bit lacking. Over the next few months, as I prepare to reboot the show in September or so, I'm going to be working on cultivating some relationships with exciting partners around Ohio, with an eye toward making the show not only better, but more sustainable. That's where you, our valued listeners, come in. I'm looking to bring on some support to help with the nuts and bolts of getting out and promoting each episode, but also to think a bit more creatively about ways to expand our listeners and the scope of the show. As we go through this planning process, we'd love your feedback on what would make Prognosis Ohio more enjoyable to you and also useful. We'd also, of course, love your support as improving the podcast is going to take resources. So our Patreon page is open as always. Okay, now to my conversation with Dr. Miriam Hussein, physician, activist, and president of the Islamic Medical Association of North America. Dr. Miriam Hussein, thanks so much for being back on the show. Oh, I'm really excited to be back. Thanks so much for inviting me. So you're currently president of the Islamic Medical Association of North America. Congrats. Thank you. I'd like to just start by having you give listeners a little overview of some of the pressing health issues in Ohio's Muslim community. And I'm aware this is a big, vague, unfair question, but I want to just kind of start by getting a little bit of context in play. Yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic question. So to put it into context with that is that there actually isn't as much... There isn't as much data out there about Muslim American health to start off with. So even what I would tell you would be more anecdotally or case report wise. And so that's actually one big disparity. Um, Is it more so just because there really may not be as much of an interest, right, in understanding what those issues are? Um, And then or how much is the community, you know, interested in filling out surveys, right, just as any community would be. So that's one thing that we're definitely facing, uh, even on a national uh, stage, I would say. Just like collecting data, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Just even yeah, with that as well. So there's definitely a lot more data on other minority groups and other minority or religious groups. But even just with the Muslim American population, it's a little, unfortunately, it's not as robust as we would like. So that's, I would say, problem number one is that we don't know what we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And then what we do know um, is that probably, you know, it's very similar to what you would see on a, um, at least what we're seeing right now is that chronic diseases. Right. So everything related to food systems and what we eat. So diabetes is, you know, relative 
relatively high uh, in the population as well. A lot of it depends on your culture and what you eat. So there's a lot of oils, a lot of sweets, you know, things like that. And then what you're able to get here versus, you know, uh, whatever uh, country that their family had come from. So that's an issue as well, high blood pressure. And typically the other thing too, cancer screenings, right? You know, um, depending on the culture that the person comes from, they may not be as comfortable with mammography uh, as other groups. And so that's one thing as well. But you see typically the same issues with colonoscopies or prostate screenings, same issues with other groups as well. Um, but I would say, yeah, basically chronic diseases, kind of with that as well. For the most part, uh, people do listen to public health guidance. So COVID, you know, at least, again, we don't have a lot of data as to how many Muslim Americans pass from it. Or, uh, But what we do know a little bit about vaccinations is that for the most part, people did get vaccinated. Yeah, it's a very science-minded community. I, I, which is something to be thankful for, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So aside from the challenges, and I hate to always start with the glass half empty, but the challenges oh. are the things that get me up in the morning right. to try to fix them. Uh, it's also true that faith can afford some unique benefits as well. And, and you know, yeah. I know I'm painting with kind of a broad brush in sure. saying that, but are there any areas in which Muslims generally, or maybe here in Ohio, where you see that there are some benefits of kind of the culture that tends to a accompany a, a Muslim patient in, in various like health contexts? Yeah, no, good question. So I would say that probably that science deference, right? And maybe it's more of a deference to authority in that sense. And again, that comes more from culture, I would say. But again, that same faith-minded background, generally speaking, is that your body is a contract you make with God, right? It's like a gift. Mm -hmm. And so your everything that you do is kind of your contract with God and how you show deference to him. So if you take care of your body, you're deferring to God and showing respect, right? You know, which is kind of what the, maybe what the whole thing is about. Um, and so for that aspect, for the most part, people do want to care about their health, right? And so that is helpful because when you frame something that, hey, this could actually help prevent death or this could protect your family, your community, you don't necessarily, again, anecdotally and generally speaking, you don't necessarily see um, resistance to that. Yeah, and, and maybe some community benefits. I know, I mean, one of the things that I long for um, as a, a person who, for whom faith is not a big part of my life, community is a big part of my life. Like, yeah. if you have people to care for you, to uh, to lean on, to remind you, and it mm. seems like any kind of faith community, in a way, mm -hmm. could potentially provide just that kind of support. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think that that's something specific to Muslims, like exactly like you mentioned. Um, there is a really big component to uh, something called the Ummah, which is the community in Islam. So uh, that is somewhat that's held extremely high that to the point that you forgive, you move on, um, you know, uh, just to preserve the community. Right. And so uh, Again, in the American Muslim context, right, sometimes you get the culture of the land you live in. And so maybe the same issues face the American Muslim community as it would any American dash community, right, mm -hmm. whatever that might be. So sometimes these individualism aspects and uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps type phenomena kind of leak into that community aspect. So you don't always see that happen as well as you like. Uh, but if you look at it fundamentally, yes, the community is a huge part of it. And so whatever you can, so again, not only are you doing something for yourself, but if it benefits your community, great.
So let's talk for a minute about the healthcare workforce. Uh, as you talk with folks at OSU where you, you work, but also through your role with Amana, do you sense that Muslims in Ohio generally find culturally competent clinicians? You know, and, and here I'm, I'm also thinking about as a medical educator myself, you know, yeah. are we doing enough in Ohio to make sure that there are physicians and other health professionals, nurses, et cetera, yeah. who understand how to work in culturally competent ways with Muslim Americans or within the specific context of Ohio's Muslim communities, which might be different from some others. Yeah, no, I, and I appreciate you elevating that point as well, too. So I would say that it's probably... I think the trend is going towards the, the way that the trend is going throughout the state in general and all of these DEI efforts, right? Um, that they're, I think they are trying to include Muslims into that uh, that diversity, right? Like, and not just the typical ones you may think of. So specifically, I will say Ohio State is actually doing a really good job. Um, and so I can't speak for the other universities, obviously, our hospital systems. But in terms of trying to be respectful of Friday prayers, right, for example, in the hospital, and especially women who may wear hijab or that, you know, that headscarf. Um, you will get those random outliers, right, you know, where you still see the need for that. But I feel like, especially in an academic professional setting, that is changing. Um, out in the community itself, right, I think it's, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily an issue specifically to health, if that makes sense, that you will see that uh, ebb and flow as it goes with politics, right? And especially around election season time that when rhetoric amps up mm -hmm. about certain anti-Muslim issues, and then on the other end, you see more inclusive um, pushes, right, as well, so that Muslims are part of every other minority group too. So it's, it's very strange to see both, you know, that um, dichotomy. I wouldn't say it's more urban or rural, um, just maybe the fact that urban settings, you have more diversity, so people are a little more understanding. But then again, in rural settings too, you'll actually have a lot of Muslim doctors that came from abroad, right? And that's where they were able to get residency or yeah. a job. And those communities love them, right? Yeah. They may have their own different uh, political ideologies, but they love their neighborhood doctor, right? So that's kind of the, the two different points, I'd say. Yeah, we've had Brian Alexander on the show. I don't know if you know Brian Alexander, his book, The Hospital, oh, which okay. is about Brian, Ohio. Um, okay. And he makes exactly that point. You know, it's a kind of rural area where a lot of immigrant physicians mm -hmm. from Pakistan and India and other points yep. are coming. You know, the, and they are beloved members of the community. They're extremely grateful for the positions they have. And it right. does create this interesting diversity that people don't actually know exists oftentimes in, right. in rural Ohio. Exactly. Yeah. So I think to I certainly want to wouldn't want to paint that and run in one brush, right? Urban, rural, red, yeah. blue. Um, and I think that's something to remind people about that. You know, you can be whatever political ideology you want to be, but when you sit down and talk to someone or that person's part of your community, right? Going back to the community, it changes everything, right? And so sometimes your political ideology doesn't match with how you love someone, yeah. right, or care about someone. So hopefully people can take that moment to reflect and really think that do I actually not like, you know, some of these um, more isolationist policies? Do I actually like those? Or maybe I don't, right? Yeah. Because of the people I interact with. Now, in your role with Amana, do you hear, you have members of, of, the, of the organization, do you hear instances of kind of anti-Muslim, you know, experiences that healthcare professionals are, are experiencing? 
or and, and, and what do you do? Like, what kind of work does the organization do to support folks? Yeah, great question. So there was actually a survey done. Uh, it was is someone who is uh, involved with Imana. He has his own institute. And so he had done a survey back in 2013 and 2021. And basically just seeing different viewpoints of American Muslim physicians, whether they were academic practice or private practice community. And it, what was uh, unfortunate is that dis- uh, people actually had noted a little more increase in anti-Muslim experiences and also not wanting to necessarily identify as or outwardly that, hey, I am a Muslim physician, mm-hmm. right? And so that there was a significant trend upward in those, um, in those uh, comments. And so, again, I would say that anecdotal, like, for example, I haven't seen that, right? Mm-hmm. But um, obviously that does happen, and especially uh, men with long beards and then women with the headscarf. So I think, and again, that that mask or that uh, trends with what's happening in society, right? And let's just be honest, since 2016, a lot of that, not just anti-Muslim, but anti-anyone else, right, that doesn't look like me, has increased, right? And so I think, um, again, it kind of, at least speaking about Imana as well, just it goes back to, again, to that data collection, right? We don't don't know how to address something if we don't know what's happening. So at least at this point, trying to elevate these reports and letting people know that, hey, this is something that is happening. And then I think the best thing that for a relief organization, right, is that we just try to remind people as well, too, that uh, as a faith-inspired organization, right, that everyone is included and we're going to help you no matter who you are, Mm -hmm. whether you hate us or love us, right? And so just reminding that message, because I think you can be that political advocacy group, right? You can do that in one aspect, but our main focus is we know that people are hurting and need relief. And when you're hurting and need relief, you don't care who's giving you that helping hand for yeah. the most part, right? And so sometimes just get offering that person that help, regardless of race, religion, all of that, that can help change people's mind viewpoints about, hey, maybe these Muslims aren't all bad. Yeah, yeah. So building on the trends you just talked about, that actually feeds nicely into something else I wanted to talk about. You know, violence against Muslim Americans has been a problem for a long time, obviously, in this country. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I I came into my own political consciousness in the years around and just after 9-11, and, and I was yeah. in New York at the time, and, and Muslims were subject to all sorts of indignities, and it was a really big, important conversation. And I think we blew it in a lot of ways, um, you know, culturally. But it's my sense, and I, I want you to tell me if, if you think I'm wrong— the media and other coverage of anti-Muslim sentiment, and especially violence, it seems to have dropped off the map a little bit. I mean, we talk mm-hmm. about Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, and we, had, we did an episode a while back, and there's some crossover yeah. there, right? But right. the kind of discourse around Muslims specifically appears to me to have changed. And I, I, I was reading recently about the murder here in Columbus of Imam Muhammad Hassan Adam, who is just 48 mm-hmm. years old. Right. Um, you know, it, it, we've talked on the show about the rise of violence. But I, I, I want to know if you think that this characterization is correct, that we've kind of refocused or lost mm-hmm. focus a little bit for over the last 20 years or so. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, um, yeah, and thank you again for, you know, bringing or elevating that issue. I mean, obviously, that was a extreme tragedy, right? I mean, this guy left a family behind. If anything, he was such a great 
builder of community, yeah. right, and relationship. Um, I never had, had gone to that masjid before, that mosque, but from what I'd heard about him, right, just like nothing but praise. Yeah, and I'm going to be sharing a bunch of links yeah. about him as well, and we'll, we'll include that in the show notes. Oh, awesome. Thank you. And I think, um, and again, I try to be of the mindset, too, that um, if, and, and the Quran says this, too, right, like if one of part of your body is hurting or if one part of your community is hurting, you all are hurting. That is it any different than Buffalo recently, right? Is it any different than the attacks on uh, Jewish preschools a few years ago, right? Is it any difference? And no, right? It's just not different. And so each one hurts. And so whether or not it's a Muslim person being attacked, it's still terrible, right, hearing anybody. And so I think that that joint struggle, right, is something that is also part of the religion and should be more part of, like, everyone's individual culture as well, right, like elevating that. So to your point, I I would say that at least about the media coverage, uh, again, this is me speaking from my point of view, right, that I wouldn't say it's necessarily – that there's less per se, right? Or maybe that unfortunately other groups are just having more. And so the focus gets shifted there. But the fact that really hurts people, and I think it's important to highlight this at least, is that how it's represented, right? That especially if there's somebody um, black or brown that's getting affected, sometimes the sentiment is that maybe it's not as important as if it were, let's say, a white person, a white community, right? And I'm grateful that at least there's been more conversations about Buffalo, but even in that context as well, too, you hear a quick um, turn away to something else, right? Whereas something else would have been elevated longer, right? And more sustained. And again, that's just as horrific as, as any other uh, mass shooting. And so... Um, And again, the other thing as well, too, is that when you do the flip side of it, and I think the flip side is also really important to highlight because it might explain why uh, when you have these mass shootings in black, brown communities, there's a different sense because when it's um, when it's a Muslim person doing committing a crime that any human could do. Right. It's a terrorist. Right. Or it's terrorism. But if it's um, a black person, right, or brown person, oh, well, they're a bad dude, right, Mm -hmm. or they look like a bad dude immediately. But then if it's um, anyone uh, looking seemingly white or Caucasian, it's a mental health issue. Right. And just the fact that there's that different representation, that's extremely dehumanizing. Right. That everything could then be a mental health issue or everything's a terrorist issue. Right. And so I think it's really good that people did call at least um, the the white shooter a domestic terrorist. Some people are. And the fact that this was as much of a national tragedy as anything else. Right. And so. I hope that answers your question. No, no, it does. And, and the way we bring mental health inappropriately into conversations, I mean, mental health is, the, the, the thing that really gets me about this is mental health is so important right. that, you know, this kind of misuse of it, you know, really undermines the good mental health work being done in our That's community. I mean, I, I guess I can ask that about the, the work you do as, um, as a physician, but also as a Muslim. I mean, mm-hmm. the mental health piece, I mean, do you feel that the gains that we've made, and my, my sense is that we've made some gains in destigmatizing mm-hmm. mental health, have those been equitably distributed within the, the Muslim community as well? Um, I would say short answer, no. And that's mainly, I think, mainly a cultural problem, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that is going to take a lot more effort and community effort as well, too, uh, from within, I think, to really break down those stigmas. Uh, but if anything, you know, that COVID, right, uh, the, uh, the one of a million terrible things that COVID has brought about, if one 
um, maybe, you know, silver lining to it is that we are talking about mental health, right? That everyone is allowed to have mental health issues, but then also deserve what mental wellness, right? And so I think that that has uh, led to a lot of national Muslim organizations talking about mental health, putting out more material about it. Um, there's actually a woman based out of Virginia who started a, um, a mental health line that uh, where vol- uh, psychiatrists volunteer for free and anyone can call, whether you're Muslim or not, a patient or not, or a physician or not, and just noting that a lot of uh, Muslim physicians, obviously, like any other physician, were suffering mental health issues, not just because seeing people die of COVID, but also just realizing that everybody has a mental health um, condition Mm -hmm. to them, and sometimes it's controlled, sometimes it's not, right? And so just, I'm grateful that that conversation has been elevated and just more needs to be done in the Muslim community. So, you know, I and maybe many of our listeners uh, first learned about you because of your work on the climate crisis, and we had you on the show to talk about that. And as I mentioned, you're currently the president of the Islamic Medical Association of North America, even though, you know, so it's a national role, even though we're talking here about Ohio and in context. I I guess I want to know a little bit more about, you know, you have this time in this role. I mean, you're going to be involved. You're you're a person who is involved in this community, and we're lucky that you're here and you're not allowed to leave. Right. I don't want to leave. <laughs> Good. Well, you're not allowed to leave anyway. No, but so I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how, how do you f- decide what to focus on? I mean, I look at the the way you describe on, on the website for Amana, you talk about public health education, you talk about women's health, reproductive health, food insecurity. I mean, there are so many issues, but you are one person with one organization with a finite amount of time. How do you find those high yield areas uh, Mm. to have maximal impact. Yeah, that's a really good point. My my family would probably disagree with you that I have too much more finite time and I'm doing too many other things. (laughs) So, um, but I would say that anytime you work with an organization, just being respectful and mindful of what is the mission, right? And so our mission really is about direct medical services, right, to national international community. So to be respectful of that. that I try to house things around that, right? So what are direct medical services? So again, just the international work that we do, um, providing medications or actual physicians, that's the capacity building that we focus on. And obviously here in the States too, when we can in domestic um, situations as well, it was, uh, thankfully, it was a really easy connect to bring climate change into that. Because one thing we realized with a climate consultant of ours is that every natural disaster or every disaster situation that we responded to since 2003 was either indirect uh, for the majority part or indirectly related to climate Mm -hmm. change, right? And so when you talk about hurricanes or earthquakes, or maybe not earthquakes, but uh, tornadoes or all of that. So it only made sense to just add on, right, one dimension to the work that, hey, we're also doing anti-climate work, right? Um, And that's new, by the way. Yes, that's yeah. new, by the way, right? I mean, so the idea that we can tie climate in that yeah. kind of a detailed way—I've been fascinated by this, this kind of translational yeah. work. I, I think back to, you know, again, the '90s, early 2000s, Al Gore, you yes. know, and the, and and climate change was still seen as, uh, you know, we, we were talking about global warming at that right. time and the ozone hole, or yep. you know, but it was still seen as this this very vague abstract idea and now we're talking about neighborhoods and communities and even city blocks and tree canopies 
So, you know, that, 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 that I think it's important to notice how, how much that's changed over these f- past few decades. Yeah. And, and, you know, to Al Gore's credit, right, this isn't about political affiliation. I mean, he definitely suffered a lot of, you know, public, mm-hmm. right, attention towards that good and bad. Um, and that everything was a there was a joke about the inconvenient truth. Right. Yeah. And that was just what 20 years ago. Yeah. And so the fact that it is an inconvenient truth now. Right. Um, Again, we can, you know, get stuck in the past or we can focus on that we have, you know, a good decade to really turn this thing around. And so whatever gets people to turn around, whether it's the tree canopy outside their, you know, window or it's, you know, a hurricane hitting some island nations uh, elsewhere around the world. Uh, we everybody needs to act in some certain way. And it, and it goes back again too about focusing on different issues is that these issues are intersectional. So when you actually deal with one thing, you realize how you're actually dealing with 10 just by the nature of focusing, let's say on food or health, right? Yeah. So you, uh, the... It's not a daunting thing to me anymore, right, when you think about it, because you realize that if I can focus on one thing, I'm actually exponentially affecting different things, right, and improving that. But also remembering that because things are intersectional, you have to look at things from a system standpoint, that you could have a great idea, but it's a terrible solution, right? (laughs) A great idea in theory, but it's terrible in practicality. And so you also realize, too, how you need other people and other people need you. And so this whole, you know, this whole thing of ego and having one organization in the limelight, it has to go out the window because we're not going to make the change we need if that's, you know, the only point to. And I'm, I'm guessing as an oncologist, by the way, let me take a quick stop. Are you an oncologist, hematologist? Uh, no, that's great. So uh, technically, I'm a fellow in hematology, oncology. Okay. So I will be an oncologist hoping okay. here like in December. Okay, good. Yeah. You know, and as a, an oncologist in training, yes. then, you know, I mean, I want, I, I'm guessing this intersectionality is really important, right? We're looking yeah. around and now, you know, compared to 30 years ago, we kind of assume everybody at certain a certain point is going to get prostate cancer for men right. or, or, you know, this sort of almost like it's inevitable, mm. right? This inevitability. Right. So I, I wonder, you're focusing on climate, but you're also doing your work as an oncologist, right, mm-hmm. in doing this work because it's all wrapped up in one another. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I just personally had an interest in further studying cancer just because of different uh, family experiences growing up. Uh, but then also, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's such a great point because the other thing, too, when you when you study more into it is that Yes, there is. Sometimes you feel there's this inevitability, let's say with smoking and lung cancer or something. But then you also realize that it's not inevitable for every. Uh, group in the community, right? Health disparities are a huge thing. Uh, black and brown people tend to get cancer more than white, uh, you know, counterparts. Yeah. Um, but and they also tend to die more than their white counterparts. So even there's that health disparity lens, right? So then again, everything being intersectional, that when you realize that this, that uh, even health is not always. Um, blind either, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least disease isn't blind as well, but it's also impacted by systems. You realize the importance more that we really have to focus on systems change, right? And it's great to be able to meet with patients one-on-one, and then that's the benefit, right, of being in that healthcare space that you can um, help educate about something or at least treat one person. But the great thing with it, you know, having that Imana um, connection as well, too, is that you can impact communities as well, right? And and again, it's not about, I think uh, one thing as well, too, because I want, if people hear this, right, if anybody takes anything away from this, that I don't think it's always about 
um, you know, changing the world, right? Uh, or like find or finding something where you're like, this is going to change the world. I, I should clarify that. That it's about finding what you really care about and what makes you you and where you're self-actualized. And then that inevitably will change the world, yeah. right? And ideally for the better. Because I think a lot of people just, and again, that's how you get rid of ego, I think, and t- really focus on community building. Because when you look at an oncologist, you would never th- automatically think climate. But I just have that, you know, that that particular passion and was able to find those connections, right? And so, I mean, it's, you know, you're living your best life type of thing um, by ho- hopefully trying to make an impact with the world. No, when you talk to your colleagues, I mean, not every physician mm-hmm. is engaged on this level with these kinds of social issues and you know climate or you know and bringing faith into that. Sure. Uh, do you have conversations with any of your colleagues where you know it's sort of like, well, we have to kind of translate that that work as a physician? I think it's changed a good deal. I know my students want to be involved increasingly. Yeah. I'm sure at OSU is the same thing. Yeah. This is a phenomenon, and it's really good. Yes, but it's still new for some folks. I mean, I know that. Some of my students um, still live in fear of how residencies, for example, are going to see their work around mm. social, political issues, any issue that might, in their mind, muddy the waters of their clinical focus, right? So, I mean, uh, I, I want to ask you if you can talk mm-hmm. to that. I mean, what, what do you tell them as they consider engaging this kind of work? Should they be afraid? Should they not? Yeah, no, that that's a great point because I definitely I had definitely had that concern as well too. I would say that I think the, co- the collective consciousness is getting raised enough that a lot of these social issues seep into the hospital system, right? Or they they come through the door whether you want them to or not, mm-hmm. right? So the amount of poverty, drug use, um, racism, everything comes in through the hospital doors, whether that's the ER, the admissions, right? And so you're going to deal with it whether you want to or not. And I would actually say that it's an extreme benefit to have those other interests and really finding out what is, again, what's your jam? What is the thing that self-actualizes you? Because you don't, um, you can throw a medication at anybody, right? But is it the right one um, in the context of where they live, in the context of their insurance status and uh, socioeconomic status? You will be a better physician understanding those intersectional issues that your particular patient is going through Mm -hmm. and you can actually practically apply that knowledge and impact one person's life right if and then in addition to understanding each individual you can impact the the larger population and community as well so i don't think that it's a something to be shy away from if anything you can use that to show just how unique you are and how you are going to change people's lives because of that knowledge my final question, you know, there's a lot of talk, uh, and rightly so, within public health these days about the relationship between diversity and inclusion and, and health. Um, non-inclusive communities are increasingly seen as unhealthy communities, right? Yeah. This idea that you need diversity to live a full and healthy mm. life. And that's a huge problem. Um, the episode preceding this one, we dealt with segregated communities and housing. Oh. And you look around Columbus and Central Ohio and Ohio generally, you see right. a lot of that. I wonder if there's a correlation, though, with faith, you know, mm. and is interfaith work an important feature of a healthy society in this way? And and do you think there's a parallel 
between those two, you know, the idea of a, a diverse community and a diverse faith community as well. Do you do interfaith work in the in the context yeah. of, of Amana? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's such, that's a really interesting point you bring up. So yes, uh, yes and yes to what you're saying. So at least uh, from Amana's standpoint, uh, the call I was on earlier was actually with this uh, organization called the Faith and Food Coalition. If you go to faithandfood.earth. Um, so there are seven different religions represented in this coalition, Amana being one of them mm-hmm. was the Muslim faith. And um, we've been able to do all these really interesting, really novel dialogues on what are actual grassroots and innovative solutions to food system crises right now. Because clearly the current food system is not working and people are very unhealthy, not just from smoking, but from the food that they eat, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Even if you try to eat healthy, right? What is that healthy food? And again, that goes back to access and disparities that if you are lower socioeconomic status, you're going to eat unhealthy food because that's what you have access to. Um, So that interfaith work has been really transformative for me on a personal level. And then I think, I mean, again, not to get too philosophical or too uh, religious about some things, but my personal standpoint, viewpoint is that we're, we're the only way we're going to get out of problems is together. And if we constantly, and we've seen what, you know, things like the Crusades and the Inquisition and all of these religious wars that had happened, you know, in centuries before, where did it really get us, right? And then to the point that now we're facing existential crisis with climate change, right? And so uh, there is an extreme need for interfaith work. It's not about whose God is right or whose book is right. right. It's about the fact that we're all not going to be here if we don't get this right. Right, right? that's Premises. bad for everybody. <laughs> that is bad for everybody. And, and again, a lot of people will be like, well, you know what? I mean, this world is finite and we're going to move on to the next. And it's like, that's great. But at the same point, just again, from a Muslim standpoint, that our job is to is, is again the earth is a gift to us right and it's our contract with god with what we do on earth and the prophet muhammad peace be upon him he came as a, a message for everyone not just muslims and that's very clearly stated in the quran too so if he's the prophet for everyone why can i not be a sister to everyone yeah Right. And so that's that's, again, ego and everything comes in the way. And if you take all that away and you go to the basics, um, God is God for everyone. I think that they're, you know, whatever name we just choose to call them different names. And this is the one earth. There is no backup. Mars is not a backup. Let's just, you know, I'm going to call that right now. (laughs) Sorry, Elon Musk. Sorry, Elon Musk. And if it is a backup, it's a backup for very few people. Right. And so this earth, um, you you just travel even to, you know, farmland here and then, you know, Hawking Hills. Right. and John Bryan State Park, we have a lot of beauty on this planet that we shouldn't throw away. And whatever way you choose to intersect with, from a faith, from a health, from whatever perspective, you can make those intersectional impacts. And so I just encourage everybody to do that. And um, just remember, you know, that you find out what is your thing yeah. who whoever you want to call upon to help you figure that out and you'll just realize as all these doors open up and there's a lot more beauty in this world than bad well before you kind of apologized for getting too philosophical i just want to say <laughs> i think we need more of that 
I think we could use a dose of existentialism in, in, in our society to understand the stakes of this. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you talking bluntly about that. I think, I think we need more of that. And talking bluntly to diverse groups, whether they're climate folks or they're folks of faith or yeah. your students or your colleagues, uh, it's, it's really important work. So again, thanks so much for doing this work. Thanks for being here. And we look forward to more conversations in the future. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Can't wait for the next one. Thanks. My many thanks to Dr. Miriam Hussein for being on the show again. It was wonderful talking with her. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Trish Mayhorn. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and to check out an archive of past episodes, including episodes that are nice counterparts to today's conversation, please visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be back in your podcast feed in a few months, a bit more rested and ready to tackle on the important issues that face Ohio. Please be in touch if you have ideas for guests, topics, or ways we can improve the show. In the meantime, we wish you well, and thanks for listening.